I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When I was pastoring in Colorado Springs, you know, it's interesting how God can often put you in just the right spot to cover some of the needs that you never imagined that you would run into in a place like that. Um, there was one day where there was a, there was another church that was less than four miles away from where we were, which in Colorado Springs, that's, that's not a very far distance, you know, here that's, that can be across town, but, but where we were, that was practically right around the corner. And, uh, it was a, it was a Baptist church. I was pastoring a Bible church, but this was a Baptist church that they were calling from. And this, uh, this lady had called and this church was going through all kinds of turmoil and trouble. It had really become an abusive situation for her and, and for a lot of the other people in the church. And so she was calling, looking for help. She was calling, looking for guidance. And I don't even know how she found my number. Um, and yet she found it and we talked for a little while and, and, and I know there's two sides to every story, but also knew of some of the things that were happening in that church and that everything she was saying was basically true, uh, if not exaggerated some. So I, so I counseled her that I said, you know, you really need to find another church. You, you need to find a church that is not into some of the things this church is into. And she said, oh, I can never do that. And I said, why not? She said, because if I join another church, I'll be left out of the bride of Christ. This is a church that taught that in order to be part of the bride of Christ, you had to be part of their little association of churches. And just like the Galatians of Paul's day, they were saying that if you want to have the full benefits of heaven, if you want to have the full inheritance, if you want to have the full blessings, then you've got to be a part of our group. It was kind of an ultra-fundamentalist sectarianism, which, by the way, brothers and sisters, is in our community too. In fact, it's pretty heavy in our community. And so as you're looking at this, as you're looking at the Galatians, you can kind of understand, just like that lady had fear that if she left that church, she would be out of the bride. So the Galatians also had fear that if they did not go back to the law, like these Jewish teachers were telling them they had to do, then they were going to miss out on the full inheritance, the full blessings of being in Christ. It's a terrible heresy. It's a terrible blasphemy to say, and and one of the marks of every false teacher that you can always depend on is that they will always in some way or some form say that the cross of Christ is not enough. You've got to do more. You've got to be more. Maybe not to be saved, but to experience the full benefits of salvation. In heaven, you've got to be more. Beloved, every cult does this. Every cult does this. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, I believe today, there are something like 40 million of them and every one of them believes that they're part of the 144,000. 
I think their math, uh, I'm not a genius at math like Miss Vanita is, but I'm, I'm thinking that doesn't add up. I, I don't know, but um, thinking that doesn't add up. Um, you know, the Mormons teach that uh, when you come into their teaching and you're, you're, you're faithful to their teaching, you get to become your own God later on, or at least they used to teach that. I don't know if they still do or not. Do they still teach that? As far as I know? Okay. And by the way, beloved, the kind of Baptist I was referring to was actually something called landmarkism. And it's all over. This Baptist bride doctrine that, that, that if you're a member of our little cluster, if you're a member of our little churches, our little association, then you are in the bride of Christ and, and everyone else, you get to go to heaven, but you're going to be the guest. Or uh, I've heard some people even teach that you're going to be the servants and the custodians in heaven. It's blasphemy. It's heresy. And by the way, that's why they insist on rebaptizing everybody because of that doctrine. And so, so it's a terrible blasphemy that Paul is going to refute very decisively in this text today. He is going to show us that by faith through Jesus Christ, we not only have full righteousness, but we also have full relationship with God. And that if you are in Christ, you are missing nothing from your salvation. Now, you may not be experiencing the full, uh, the full experience of it due to sin or stuff like that. But there is nothing hindering you from having the fullest joy and the fullest expression of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone. Not by the church you join. Not by the particular person who baptizes you, not by the things that we do or the laws we keep, but through Jesus Christ alone. Beloved, do we really believe that Jesus is enough? Do we really believe that? Because not, to not to is heresy. To not to is blasphemy. And so, and so the Galatians were perhaps motivated by fear. They were motivated by doubt to, 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 uh, to be tempted to go back to the law. Or maybe it was something like this. And maybe you've had this experience in your family. Have you ever thought that, man, it would be just so much easier before I was a Christian and we didn't have all these little arguments about truth and doctrine and all this stuff? I should just go back not being a Christian again. Have you ever been tempted to sacrifice truth for the sake of peace? What family in this room has not done that before? Sacrificing truth, sacrificing right and wrong for the sake of peace. So that we won't argue. So that we won't split a church. So that we won't do all these other things. Beloved, truth must be stood on, especially when it is directly related to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It must be stood on. And whatever, there are some fights that need to be had. There are some arguments that need to be done. And so, and so just like the Galatians, we need to resist the temptation to turn back to the law, regardless of what it might be motivated by, whether it's motivated by fear, by not being in, you know, the Baptist bride or whatever, whether it's motivated by doubt or whether it's motivated by simply keeping the peace, we must resist turning back from Christ to the law. To do so would be a severe danger. In fact, it is the moment our church starts dying. When we do that, it is a disease. It is a cancer. It is more deadly than COVID-19. It has a, it has a mortality rate of 100%. The moment a church starts sacrificing the gospel, they start dying. And it is only a matter of time. 
And so we must resist that temptation by turning back to the law. And Paul's going to show us the relationship side of that beginning in verse one through three by, by remembering because we got to resist this because of our former enslavement. Because of our former enslavement before redemption. Look, Paul's going to drive this home with a second analogy. He, he gave an analogy back in chapter three, verse 23 of a child being under, uh, the guardianship of a slave. But now he's basically going to bring the same analogy, but he's going to put a different kind of spin on it, a different kind of lesson on it. And here's what he says. He says, this is what our enslavement looked like. He said in verse four, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. By the way, the ESV is a little misleading there. The word should be Lord, though he is Lord. He is heir apparent of everything is what we might say today. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, now this is a little debated. We don't know exactly what Paul is referencing here. Uh, most of the older preachers will say that it's going back to a Roman practice that, uh, that had to do with the family and how it was situated. Most of your scholars today, it's going to say that it goes to a Greek family and some of the things that are involved there. Some people even point to Jewish families and some of the things that they used to do back then. More than likely, it is probably a Greek family that Paul is referencing because that is what the Galatians would have been familiar with. But the point of, but the, but at the end of the day, It really doesn't matter because his point is clear. His point is clear that as while a son was a child, they were placed under the care of household slaves and those household slaves were in charge of their entire lives. Everything they did had to be done with permission from those household slaves. So even though he was the heir apparent of the family's fortune, even though he was technically the owner of all, for all practical purposes, he was no different in the household than a slave. And for all practical purposes, legally, he was no different than a slave. And so for all legal purposes, he was really no different. By the way, kids, don't you feel like that sometimes? Don't you feel like that? I tell my kids all the time. I had kids, not because I like kids. I had kids because I got chores I need done around the house. (laughs) I need, I need the lawn mowed. That's why I had kids, you know, (laughs) you know, you kind of feel like that sometimes, don't you? Especially teenagers, teenagers, man. I mean, you know, you're, you're expected to act like adults and yet, you know, we still treat you like kids. And it's just kind of this weird age where you're really not one or the other. You're just kind of in between and, and it's just weird and a lot of confusion. You know, it's, you can imagine what that feels like. So imagine what Paul is saying here. take that and imagine that for all legal purposes, you are a slave. You, you are for all practical purposes in the household. You're governed by slaves. You are a slave. And this is what Paul is comparing it to before we came to Christ. This was our reality. This is what we were like, but this is what we were in verse three. He says, in the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We were enslaved. In fact, the way he words this is emphatic. Paul is including himself. I, you, every single person before Christ is enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We hear all about today about how don't infringe on my personal freedom. Don't infringe on my personal rights. Beloved, if you believe the Bible, then you know without Christ, you're a slave. You don't have any freedom. You don't have any rights. 
You're a slave. You're a slave to the elementary principles of the world. And it, no, and it is no matter where you come from. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says the same thing. He says that all, uh, I think I have this up there, don't I? He says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We were all enslaved. We had no freedom. We were all enslaved to our sin. And that's every one of us, just like that Greek child. No legal rights, no reason to expect anything good from God, immature, no self-determination, no inheritance until the time, just like the Greek child, determined by the father, we are all slaves. To what? To what's called the elementary principles of the world. What's that talking about? It's kind of an interesting phrase and I wish I had more time, but I don't. So let me just say this. It's talking about kind of the ABCs of the world. Those basic principles. In fact, if you look at uh, Colossians chapter two, verse 23, uh, excuse me, chapter two, verse eight, he says the same thing. He mentions this and he says, he says these, uh, not 23, brother Mark, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Verse eight. He says here that, that uh, see to it that you do not, do I not have it up there? <laughs> Look at what I did. Uh, turn to your Bibles to Colossians chapter eight. You know what? This is important enough. You need to see it anyway. Colossians chapter eight, underline it in your Bibles. See, I did that to draw attention to it. I did that on purpose. That was not a mistake. You guys believe that, right? Yeah, okay. So it says here in verse eight, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. That's the same word. And not according to Christ. So, so look at all the things that are involved there. Philosophy, empty deceit, According to human tradition, basically anything that is not according to Christ, whatever we were before we came to Christ, that is the elementary principles that Paul is referring to. It's these things that entice us to come back. Whatever, whatever worldly logic, whatever principles, whatever customs, whatever traditions, be it paganism, be it Judaism, be it civic religion, whatever it is that enticed us and kept us away from Christ, Paul is saying that you are a slave to those things before you came to Christ. And why are they so enticing? Because verse 23, uh, pop it back up there. Why are they so enticing to us? Why are we so tempted by it? Because they have the appearance of wisdom. They have the appearance of wisdom, don't they? Don't they look good? Man, civic religion looks good, doesn't it? I'm a law-abiding citizen and I I do my duty. I'm a God-fearing American. Love God. Love my girl. Love my country. Right? And there's nothing wrong with those things until they become our faith. Until they become what we're trusting in. That's the issue. They have the appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And boy, we're seeing that right now, aren't we? Some of the most religious people saying the most hateful things on Facebook over mask. There's no, there's no value there for, for resisting the flesh. There's no, there's no value there has the appearance of wisdom, but it doesn't. And so, and so they are of no value. We must resist the temptation to go back to them. Resist the temptation to go, to go back to that slavery. 
Resist that temptation. That would be like the Israelites. You remember in Numbers chapter 11 where they, where they, they said, Oh, we had it so great in Egypt and now we're just dying out here. We want to go back to Egypt. And, and, and later on in Numbers, they literally tried to lead a rebellion against Moses to go back and, and God punishes them. That would be the same thing for me to go back to my sin, for me to go back to the very things that enslaved me. Why would I do that? When what I have now is so much better. We must resist that temptation. Why? Because we need to understand we were enslaved, but also because of the accomplishment of Christ. Because his accomplishment of redemption. Look what he says in verse four. Let's go back here in verse four of Galatians. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Like I said, just like there was a set time by a Greek or Roman or Jewish father, just like there was a set time set by them. So also God in the fullness of time, when time had come to its fruition, when in the redemptive plan and redemptive history of God, the time had come, he sent forth his son. He completed that period of time that showed us our utter sinfulness and the sinfulness of humanity. We saw in Genesis chapter one and two and three that man was created in absolute innocence and yet what did he do? He sinned. Rest, you come now in Genesis, people are, are living according to their own conscience, living according to their own ways. And, and what did they do? They got so wicked that God sent the flood. And so God gave them human government to restrain some of that sin. And what did they do? That government turned against God and started building a tower in order to worship the false heavens and lead all the other people of the earth to worship a false God. And so God gave the law. And what did we do? We disobeyed it. God gave judges. What did they do? They did what was right in their own eyes. God gave kings. What did they do? They lived according to their own selfishness and their own doing and led people astray from God. And so God gave prophets. And what did, he, and what did they do? They killed the prophets. And all of this was to show that left to ourselves, we are utterly sinful. And no matter what state we find ourselves in, we will not choose Christ. We will not we will not turn to God left to ourselves. That's what all this proves. Can you imagine going before God? God, you created me with this sin nature. It's your fault. No, no, no. I created you in innocence. Adam and Eve sinned. Well, God, if only you had put something in place to, to keep me and help me obey. No, no, no. I gave you government and you still did it. Oh God, if you just told me what you wanted. No, no, no. I gave you a law. Oh God, if you just told me, if you just t- given me someone to teach me the law. No, no, no. I gave you prophets. You killed them. Man is without excuse. There is no excuse and no matter what state we find ourselves in. And so in the fullness of time, when that was fully demonstrated, God sent forth his son, praise the Lord. He sent forth his son and, and notice how God came to us. Notice how he sent him. This, this is incredible. Don't read over these verses. I know I say this every week, but don't read over these verses too fast. Spend some time with them. Let them culminate. Let them incubate in your heart. 
It says he sent forth his son. How? He was born of a woman. Now, this may be a reference to the virgin birth. Um, a pretty vague reference at best. I think it probably goes more back to Genesis 3.15, where it is the promised seed of the woman. But regardless, it's saying that Jesus came as a full man. He was fully man. And he was born under the law. So in other words, what you have here is you have two truths that he was, he was second Adam and he was true Israel and that he was born under the law. He was born of a woman. He lived perfectly under the law. He lived in the absolute and total dependence of God for all of those on behalf of the, of us who would come to know him. It's an incredible thing. But then we also see why he came in verses five and we have two purposes here. Two purposes. Number one, why did he came? To redeem those who were under the law. Every single one of us, slaves to the elementary principles of the world that Paul is specifically including the law here. Those who are born under the law, why did he come? He came to redeem us. How? By suffering the curse of the law. You see right here, beloved, we have Christmas and Easter in just a few verses. We have Christmas and Good Friday right here to redeem those who are under the law. Not only did he obey the law perfectly, but he was put to death for our imperfections. He was born under the law in order that he may suffer its own death penalty. Christ took on his own wrath. He experienced for each and every one of us. He was born under the law, therefore he was born under his curse. And what we have here is the incredible life of God, the incredible life of God the Son, Jesus Christ, right here. We have it all summarized that he was born under the law, born of a woman, and he came to redeem those under the law. How? By suffering the curse of the law for us. Why is that? Second purpose? So we can have a new relationship. He says here in verse four, in verse five, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is amazing. Absolutely amazing. All this time, all through chapter two, all through chapter three, we've been talking about salvation in terms of righteousness, being holy, being right with God. And we need to do that. Especially in today's time, especially in the time of Paul, we need to do that. I'm so thankful for those who, who have come back and rediscovered the great truth of justification by faith alone. And we, we have that legacy that we never really lost, but it was discovered in mass 500 years ago. I'm so thankful for that. But beloved, Don't fall into the trap of thinking that salvation is a cold, legal transaction. It's not. That's what legalists do. They always focus on the, on the, on the cold transaction of obedience. If I do this, God blesses me. And usually by blessing, they mean material blessing. 
Don't focus on the cold transaction, the cold legal transaction of righteousness, even though, yes, it is so clear and so important. Salvation is more than that. He redeemed us, not just so that he can make us righteous, not just so that he can declare us righteous. He, he hung on that cross for six hours. He tortured his son, not just so that he could redeem you, not just so that he could save you, but so that he could adopt you. So that he can make you his own. So that he can make you his child. So that he can make you his legal heir. So he can have a relationship with you. In justification we see his mercy. But in adoption we see his love. We see the heart of God toward you. What else do you need? What more? You remain unconvinced that God loves you? What more do you need? What more? You remain unconvinced that there is something more you must do to earn his love when he has already done all this to win you. What are you going to add? What more do you need? Jesus accomplished all of this for us. Why would we want anything less? Why would we want a cheap substitute in the law when we can not only have the right, the very righteousness of God declared on our account, but we can have the very relationship with God. God, the son brings us into the communion with God, the father and God, the spirit. And that's what we have by grace through faith. There is no law that can do that. There is no, there, there is nothing I can do to earn myself to be a part of Brother Art's family. Even though he's always wanted a son just like me. There, there's no, <laughs> there, there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing I can say. There's nothing I can do. If I'm going to be a part of his family, it must be completely and totally and absolutely of his own grace. And beloved, if you are going to be part of the family of God, you must come through the grace of God toward you. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. He accomplished it. And beloved, when he accomplished it, he doesn't just dangle it in front of our faces and make us grasp for it. You remember that? What was that? It was an insurance commercial. It was, uh, it was like, uh, what is it? Uh, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there and the guy shows up and he's all prepared and ready. And then the other person tries to get their insurance company to show up. And it's like this guy sitting on a chair with a fishing pole with a dollar bill and he's having to reach for it and grab it, you know? I think that's how some people think of salvation sometimes. That Jesus accomplished it, he made it possible, and now we've got to jump through the hoops to get it. Jumping through hoops is for circus animals. Not for God's people. And he didn't accomplish it and didn't dangle it in front of us. What did he do? We have the application of it in verses 6 and 7. And again, just very quickly, I'm out of time. And the verses are wrong there. It's verses 6 and 7. But we see the Spirit's application You see, Jesus, the father did not just plan it. The son did not just accomplish it, but the spirit brings it to us. He applies it. What what Jesus made possible, the spirit made actual. 
He says here in, in verse six, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, father. What Christ made legal, the spirit made personal. What Christ made possible, the spirit makes actual. What Christ did for us, the spirit brings to us. And notice what he does. He changes our nature. He comes into our hearts. He changes us. He changes us from the inside out. Beloved, this is why legalism will always fail. This is why it will always fail. No matter the form, no matter whether it is the the kind seven steps to your best life now, or whether it is the pulpit pounding, screaming preachers of yesteryear, whatever legalism, whatever form it takes, this is why legalism will always fail because legalism thinks it can change you from the outside in. And that'll never work. And we hear this logic all the time, right? As long as, as long as we teach them to obey enough, they'll have a change of heart. No, the change of heart has to come first for it to be biblical salvation. He comes into our heart. He changes us from the inside out. Otherwise, we are whitewashed tombs. We look great on the outside, but we're full of dead men's bones. We're empty. Only the Spirit can change us from the inside out. Only God can do this. Only the Spirit can change our focus from material blessings from God to a relationship with God the Father, God the Son. The only change that matters, the only change that has any eternal value, the only holiness in my life that counts for anything is the holiness that is lived out through a dependent relationship through the Spirit that comes to us through the gospel. That's the only thing that matters. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3 says this in so, much, in so many words. It says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. And watch this. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? The only, the only uh, holiness, the only salvation, the only holiness, the only righteousness that matters is that which is born of the Holy Spirit when he comes into our hearts through the gospel. Everything else is legalism. Everything else is outside in. You cannot worship your way to heaven. You cannot glorify your God way to, on your way to heaven. You cannot work your way to heaven. But praise God, he brought heaven to us. And you can have heaven through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can have heaven through him. And what does he do? He changes our nature and our disposition. There's so much more I want to say here, but it's a longing for fellowship, crying out, Abba, Father. It's not, it's not necessarily urgent. It's not screaming, but it's, but it's the, it's the, it's the longing of it. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. The spirit changes us to where we are his sheep and we know his voice. And, and, and the spirit moves us from being a God hater to someone who loves God and longs to be with him. The spirit changes us from someone who is repulsed by God, repulsed by his truth, repulsed by his commands to someone who longs to obey him, not, not for what we can get out of it, but so that we can please him in relationship. He changes us. Before we obeyed God for what we could get from God. 
Now we obey God because we love him. Because there's a relationship there. And this is our ultimate pleasure. This is what the spirit grows in us in salvation. And it's what it means to be a child of the king. So beloved, let me ask you a question. Are you, are you growing in this? Are you seeing these marks in your life? Are you seeing these fruits in your life? Or are you seeing the fruits of legalism? Are you seeing the chaos of idolatry, things that you love more than God? Or do you have a true longing, created longing in you to be with God and his people for no other explanation than the fact that God changed you in salvation? Let me ask you this, as we, as we bow our heads, let me just ask you this. And the, the, the movie we're going to show, American Gospel, it asks this question. And it's a wonderful question. Do we come to God so that we can get God? Or do we, or do we come to God so that we can get the things our heart is really after? Respect, money, better jobs, material blessings, position, influence, Or are you willing to lay all those things down on the cross, sell all of your possessions and give to the poor and forsake all and follow him? Are you willing to lay it all down so that you can have something better? So that you can have Christ? Do you count all these things as rubbish? To know him and him crucified. Now, you may have a righteousness not of your own making, but you may have a righteousness that is born of him by faith. My Father, I'm so thankful for these truths. And Lord, I pray that you are building these things in us. None of us have arrived. None of us can say that we have gotten to this point. I know It will not be perfected in us until you do your perfecting work in heaven through glorification. But Father, if there's one here this morning who cannot honestly say that they are growing in these things, that they are moving closer in this, that they are moving to a deeper and more satisfying relationship with you, that that they are forsaking their idols and coming to you, Lord, if there's one here who can't say that, I pray that they will search their soul examine themselves and that they will know before they leave here today in their heart of hearts that they are truly yours. Not because they attended here today, not because of any righteousness of their own, but through Christ. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Let's stand together and let's sing a couple of verses. We learned this song last week. Let's sing this verse. Let's sing this song together.